Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So you have to get your right, the right tune from whatever, whatever lineage I went. I'm so used to doing the, the precepts uh, and the refuges with the other tunes. So now I'm on the East Coast. I know where I am. Okay. Hello. Good to be here with you after <clears throat> this day of practice. I know a number of people uh, have just arrived, and a number have been sitting for a while. <clears throat> I wanted to talk about something that <clears throat> would be appropriate for for both groups, and. Uh, I want to talk tonight about the power of intention. <clears throat> the Buddha said we have a choice that we can create suffering or we can create happiness in our lives. And we're we're choosing whether we realize it or not, we're choosing in every moment. We're choosing just by the source of our actions, where our actions are based through our intention. But generally, without recognizing it, we are... subject to repeat the habits of mind that have become habits, habitual. On one, uh, in one discourse, the, the Buddha, he sat down and he looked at his mind. He said before he was enlightened, he saw different categories of thought. One thought categories, or one categories of thought, had thoughts of ill will, cruelty, and sense desire. And he said, when I saw those thoughts, they caused affliction to myself and to others, and they were uh, not so healthy and led to suffering. And then he said sometimes he saw thoughts that were the opposite of non-desire, of being able to let go, non-ill will, loving kindness, non-cruelty, compassion. And he said, when I saw those kinds of thoughts and I acted from them, they brought happiness to myself. So in the sutta, he said, oh, I just abandoned those, the unpleasant ones, and developed the, the pleasant ones, the wholesome ones. Um, sounds pretty good. If you're about to be a Buddha, you just abandon those unpleasant thoughts and cultivate the wholesome ones. Um, but it's not as easy as just deciding. And in that same sutta, the, the key teaching, he says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of their mind. That as we practice certain habits of mind, they become cultivated. So here we're, we are here now to give ourselves a real choice. How does that work? How can we change? Well, first, we see how the mind works. Have you started to see how the mind works? Kind of humbling, isn't it? But it's really interesting. We see how it works. We have some understanding of where true happiness lies, as he described in that 
a short teaching. We then change our habits of mind. How do we do that? I, I came across, somebody sent me, this is from a, a card that I, a friend gave to me. It says, um, meditate like a Zen monk at the push of a button. Remarkable audio technology transports you effortlessly and safely into brainwave states of deep meditation, relaxing stress, relief, profound emotional healing, high-performance mental abilities, increased self-awareness, guaranteed at the push of a button. Experience meditation made easy, and it accelerates results permanently heals dysfunctional feelings and behaviors, even those which have stubbornly resisted other approaches. We guarantee this program works for you. I'll post the address if you want afterwards. I haven't seen that to be true. It takes work, doesn't it? This really takes work. And the key is noticing our intention. Intention is the, the second link in the Eightfold Path. Sometimes it's called right thought or wise thought and often wise intention. It follows from right understanding. As soon as you see where happiness lies, then getting clear on your intention to go for that um, sets you in the right direction. There's two levels of intention that I want to speak about. One is the intention that we bring to every single moment that is planting seeds that are bearing fruit, and another is um, the larger perspective of aspiration of what we want to really create in our lives, and both are really important. The first one in every moment is really how karma works. In every moment, we're sowing the seeds through either greed, hatred, and delusion for suffering or through non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion for happiness. As the Buddha says, intention, I tell you, is karma. Intending, one creates karma by way of body, speech, and mind. And uh, I um, like to share what for me has been very profound, kind of waking me up to see how this works. Uh, by just taking an illustration in your, in, your, in your life, seeing how it works both ways. All right? Think of something that you've done that has been less than skillful. Somewhere in your distant past, if you can't come up with anything more recently, just think about it. Don't think about it too much, but bring it to mind. In each moment, we plant a seed that bears fruit in at least four ways. Now think about as you were in the middle of that act or said the words, how it felt. Or maybe just after you did the act. Maybe it felt pretty good while you were doing it, but just right as you were finishing up. How did it feel? Probably not so good. Oh, God, I can't believe I did that. And the energy that comes back to you from whoever was on the receiving end probably wasn't so pleasant. They probably didn't say, oh, thank you for the feedback. Or, uh, well, what a nice guy. It comes back in a kind of negative way. The likelihood that you will do that in a similar fashion, in a similar circumstance, is greater because you've practiced, you've planted that seed, so that gets reinforced. 
And when you think about it, when you just thought about it right now, how did it feel? Probably not so good. So there's four different ways in the act, the energy that comes back, the, the habit that is cultivated, and when you reflect on it in retrospect, four ways that one less than skillful act bears fruit. That's the, the bad news. The good news, take a few breaths. And think of something you've done that's really wholesome. A random act of kindness or just a very thoughtful connection with somebody. You might even have a picture in your mind. As you think back, remember the moment as you were doing that. How did it feel? Probably felt pretty good, huh? What's the energy that comes back to you from whoever's on the receiving end? Probably appreciation, gratitude, friendliness. The likelihood that you will Repeat that is greater because you've practiced it. You've planted that seed. And when you just thought about it, reflected back on it, how did it feel? Probably really good. Okay, you can open your eyes. So... One wholesome act bears wholesome fruit in four different ways. Whenever I reflect on that, it, it really makes me want to clean up my act, you know, because every moment counts. Every single moment we are creating our karma through our intention. Usually we don't catch it fast enough to have give ourselves choice. But as the Buddha said, drop whatever we frequently think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of mind and has this image that probably many of you are familiar with it. Drop by drop, you put a a bucket under a, a dripping spigot and the bucket gets filled. Each drop doesn't seem like much, but as it keeps on filling from one one wholesome spigot, it gets filled, and that becomes your, your way of being, generally speaking. Now, on retreat, this is a real um, ideal, optimal environment to notice how it works and give ourselves choice. Because we're slowing down enough to see And there's lots of different choices, many, many choices, decisions you're faced with throughout the day. You know, like, hmm, should I do metta or should I do vipassana? Should I do concentration? Should I do open awareness? Should I walk now or should I sit? Should I go for a relaxing walk? Or should I stay with lifting, moving, placing, whatever it is? Should I take a peek at this person who's walking by? It's going to kill me if I don't, maybe. Oh, maybe I shouldn't. Okay. Should I go to sleep or should I stay up longer? Should I go for a cup of tea? Should I relax? Should I turn up the jets? So how to decide with all of these, there's no one right way. So as far as intention around practice right here, it's not like you're going to pass or fail 
but with our intention. When we get clear on why we're here, then that can be a kind of guiding signpost for what we do. Why am I doing what I'm doing? If I go for a cup of tea, you might really need a cup of tea. You might find the walls closing in and think, wow, I just need to lighten up right now. Or it might be, well, I've had tea three times this afternoon. Maybe I don't need to go to the bathroom that often. Why am I going for the cup of tea? Why am I sitting for this long time? Why am I going to sleep? Or why am I staying up? There's no right or wrong, but to ask yourself not only why I'm doing what I'm doing, but will this serve my practice? That intention, that overall intention, is a very useful one to check in continually because so many times we want to do it right. We don't want, you know, oh gosh, I don't have an interview for, for another three days, two days. You know, what am I going to, how can I decide this one? You know, whoever you speak to in an interview might tell you something that was relevant, that's relevant in that moment, but not two days before. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Does this serve my practice? Does this serve really be my presence, my wakefulness, my understanding. Do I need to relax? Do I need to uh, give a fuller commitment? So there's no right or wrong. You need to get clear on why you're here. And that leads to the second level of intention, which is that of aspiration. As it, as it says in the Tibetan teaching, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. Why are you here? There's something really deep that's called you here. And as you can get in touch with it, the more we get in touch with it, the more we fuel our practice. What's inspired you to set this time aside? I remember when I first started practicing and even now these days, the first time I heard it, it was it was very moving. I, I remember hearing this line, the Buddhas, that said, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. That just got to me. Wow, he, he wasn't kidding around. If it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. I said, okay. That sounds pretty good to me. I'm going for it. So we can have a kind of idea what we are motivated by, but there's some things to uh, to understand about this, whatever our aspiration is or our motivation. First of all, that Intention is different from goal, is different from expectation. I talked about expectation this morning. You know, just noticing what ideas you have of what should happen or what you hope would happen. It gets very complicated when you're giving yourself a timetable. Am I there yet? You know, like a little kid. Are we there yet? You know, am I concentrated enough yet? Am I clear enough yet? 
that just works against you. Intention is just inclining the mind, is that that phrase that uh, from that discourse uh, is puts it inclining the mind in a certain direction, just facing a certain direction and doing your part to make that happen. And it can seem sometimes like it's, it's so far down the road what your highest aspiration is, what, you, what you're inspired by, what vision inspires you, that it can seem kind of either discouraging or uh, kind of, you know, well, why, how, how, how could I put all of this energy in? You know, maybe not this life, maybe 20 lifetimes from now something, something good would, would come. But it doesn't matter how long it takes. All it matters is what you're bringing to this moment. I remember on one retreat, I went to um, an interview with with Joseph, and uh, <clears throat> it was like I at some point I've been practicing for a number of years, but um, at some point it was like I opened up to this like like I fell through a trap door and I was going into a whole other world of practice, and I went in very humbled into the the interview and I said, I don't know what I've been doing the last five or six years, but this is like a whole other, you know, whole other ball game. And it's like, it's amazing. And he looked at me and he had this twinkle in his eye and he leaned forward and he said, he said, I know, I know that feeling. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I get it every time I sit. I said, oh, cool. And then he looked at me and he said, it's like we're at the tip of the iceberg this real sparkle. We're at the tip of the iceberg. And he didn't say, oh, we've got so far to go. He said, isn't it exciting how much there is to open up to and discover? It's fascinating, isn't it? How the subtleties of the mind get revealed and how life reveals itself as you start to explore. There's... It's an adventure. So if your intention is based on goal, based on getting to some ideal destination, it just gets in the way. Just incline your mind and keep on exploring. That's what makes it exciting. There was uh, somebody asked Thomas Edison when he... Um, he uh, invented the light bulb. It was a long process. There were actually uh, 2,000 attempts that he made in inventing the light bulb. And this reporter asked him, journalist asked him years later, he said, how did it feel, Mr. Edison, to fail 2,000 times before inventing the light bulb? And Edison said, my dear man, I didn't fail. I invented the light bulb, and it was a 2,000-step process. It's good when you can have that kind of a, a long-range view that this is not about a race. It's not to see who gets there first. It's to just keep connected to your intention doing your part, taking the next step, and having a trust that this natural unfolding will happen in its own perfect way, in its own perfect time, just the way it's supposed to. That's when we take refuge in the Dharma. That's what refuge in the Dharma means for me, that, that life is giving us just what we need to wake up if we can use it wisely, skillfully. <clears throat> okay, so what about when you have mixed intentions? 
Sometimes it's not always 100% pure. Okay, I'm going to sit. It's really late. And I'm going to sit up late because it feels so good. Except there's one other person in the hall who's sitting up too. And I'm going to sit until they go to bed. I know this one well, by the way. On my first retreat, not first three-month retreat, yeah, I just had energy towards the end of the evening, you know. And it was really cool. And I get really, okay, here we go. And it was fun. There's a kind of a late-night club. It's not so much in, in, uh, in the Forest Refuge, but when you're doing it on a, a structured time of a, a group retreat, um, you know, everybody has a wake-up bell, and then there's a last sitting, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I just kind of got energy at night, and there'd be this little club that we, I'd be part of. Except there were just a couple of people that always stayed up so late, and I have a kind of competitive spirit that I was noticing, and... Mm, all right, they're up. I'll be up. Mm, they're still up. Okay. I just want to be here for my breath. Okay. Mm, I just want to practice. I love practice. They're still up. God damn. You know. And I, I was doing this. I was seeing this night after night. And finally, I, I went into... Interview with Joseph, and I said, I, you know, I don't know. There's something. It's good. I'm getting some practice, but uh, I just see a different reason for staying up. Sometimes he actually told me a story. He said, "Oh, I know what that one's like." I said, "Yeah." He said, "Oh, yeah." When he was practicing in the Burmese vihara in his in the early days in late '60s, he said there was this guy a Danish guy, as I recall, who um, who was up. He had his light on. You could see the light above, right? I think the guy was next to him, and you could see that, you could see that his light was up. And Joseph was determined to stay up as long as this guy was staying up. <clears throat> and he went through this. He never was able to. And finally, when they both got out of the retreat, he said to the the guy, how did you stay up so late? You never turned your light up. You light, you know, did you go to sleep at all? And the guy said, oh, yeah, I went to sleep with my light on. <laughs> there was the lesson. But anyway, when I, when I saw my motivation, he said, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, if it keeps you up, keeps you practicing, and you've got some more moments of mindfulness... Just look at your motivation from time to time. Okay, I want to win. And then let it go and keep feeling your breath. Keep noticing the moment. That's okay. It was really great advice. Because what I've seen over time is that... um, if you pay attention to it's whatever intention you pay attention to that you'll feed. And if you're sitting there saying, Oh gosh, I'm such a phony, you know, this is just such ego, you know, yuck. All you'll do is cultivate that kind of not only aversion, but discouragement and doubt and um, uh, all your wholesome efforts to be present and to wake up will be, will vanish as you focus on that less than noble intention. But if you focus on the intention that's really inspiring you, And don't feed that other one. Not that you're not aware of it, but just letting it be in the background 
and being inspired by whatever it is that calls you, that that's what you feed. That's what grows. So it's very rare that there's not mixed intentions as long as there's a self to compare or to hope is doing well, there'll be some, probably some less than noble intentions. You don't have to get rid of it. You know, It'll probably be there until you're an arahat, some sense of self. But if it's 90% wholesome, 10% unwholesome, don't focus on the 10% because the 90% will vanish and that's all that you'll see. Just keep on focusing on the wholesome. Even if it's 50-50, focus on the wholesome. Even if it's 10-90, focus on the motivation that really speaks to your heart because as you do, that's what you give life. Mm. So, mixed intentions. Mm. How about changing when it seems so hard? You know, we've been practicing a lifetime of habits. And when you start to look at the, the depth of conditioning that you bring to practice, as I said before, it can be really humbling. Well, one key is getting in touch with your intention to change. A number of years ago, I was one of my first uh, early retreats uh, where I was sitting. I wasn't teaching. This is in the 70s. And uh, it was down at Yucca Valley. Uh, every um, every day there was a movement session, as we sometimes do on retreats now, as we often do on retreats now. And uh, a movement teacher who um, guided mindful mindful movement <clears throat> from this uh, school, the Lomi School. And at the end of the uh, the session, sometimes there'd be people who would come up and have some questions. And this one night, I, one day, I had a question. So I was up there with about, oh, five or six other people who had these questions. And this one, um, this one woman uh, had a question about how she could address some body issue. And the teacher thought, and he said, well, uh, you might try this, this exercise this stretch. And she said, oh, no, 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 I, I can't do that because um, this might go out. And he thought for a moment. He said, oh, well, here's an alternative. You might try it this way. And she said, oh, no, 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 I, I can't do that because um, there's something else that I might aggravate. And then he gave her a third alternative. He said, well, here's, here's one completely different. And um, once again, she deftly parried the, uh, the suggestion. Uh, I can't do that one either. And then he stopped and he said, you know, um, I think your intention to stay the same is greater than your intention to change. And if your intention, if and when your intention to change is greater than your intention to stay the same, you'll change. That was like, Dead silence. It was, you could, we all felt that he hit the nail on the on the head. Intention really is—it's not wishing, it's not hoping, it's deciding. It's deciding to make change happen. That it's a an inclination with a powerful decision that believes in the possibility. Because if you don't believe in that possibility, 
it won't happen. There's a famous saying from this, um, one of the pioneers of prosperity consciousness, this guy at Napoleon Hill, um, wrote a, a really great book, the title of which is probably not the most Dharmic title, Think and Grow Rich, but it's a fabulous book. And he said, whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it will achieve. You need to believe in the possibility that change can happen. So you need to notice whatever limiting beliefs you have about who you are and what the potential is in your practice, in your work here. Not just something that the Buddha said, but something that you can do for yourself. And nobody can give that to you. It's somehow getting in touch with it for yourself. If you have the idea... You know, oh, this happened to me when I was this age, so I can never change. Or I've been practicing this habit for so long, you know, it just seems too unrealistic to think I can change. That's not the way it works. Everyone who's or most people, I find, who've inspired me are people who have gone through challenges and difficulties and come out the other side and then have something to offer, their own conviction that change is possible. I want to... Maybe I'll do this. I wanted to read a couple of stories about change. This is from um, this man who is the no, now known as the father of positive psychology, uh, Martin Seligman. <clears throat> and there's a big movement in psychology in the last 10 years or so. Rather than seeing what's wrong and how people will, you know, are just so... <clears throat> making psychology a pathology of this. When I, I was a psych major, oh, there's abnormal psych was so fascinating because you know, there's this thing that can go wrong and this thing, and you read the, the textbook on abnormal psychology and you get every single condition as you're reading it. <clears throat> well, in the last 10 years or so, it's like seeing, oh, this is, this is how wellness happens and this is how wellness happens and this is how wellness happens. And this guy, Martin Seligman, was the he was the president of the American Psycholo- Psychological Association and he was the, he's the father of positive psychology and this is how the positive psychology movement started <clears throat> this is him writing the moment took place in my garden while i was weeding with my 5-year-old daughter nikki i have to confess that even though i write books about children i'm really not all that good with children I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air, singing and dancing around. I yelled at her. She walked away, came back, and then said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. Yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday... From the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. (laughs) This was, for me, an epiphany, nothing less Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I'd spent 50 years mostly enduring wet weather in my soul and the last 10 being a nimbus cloud in a household full of sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to my grumpiness, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. 
That was the birth of the positive psychology movement. Change can happen. Here's a, I'll read one more story. This is so inspiring. This is from a book that I love called How We Choose to Be Happy about different people's stories and the decisions they make that lead them towards real happiness. This is Maddie. Mm. Maddie's parents, oh, and all the people in this in this book were interviewed and identified as extremely happy people. They were identifiably happy. I know that the guys who wrote this book and they for three years they interviewed they were on a quest to discover happy people. They go into a town in rural Alabama and say who's the happiest person in town? They go into the diner and people would say, oh, Shirley, she's the happiest. And then they'd find Shirley and interview her and say, are you happy? Yeah, I'm pretty happy. You know, and then they'd, they'd ask if they could interview somebody else who might know a different part of her life, like their family, her family or coworkers. And if everybody seemed to agree she's happy, they'd want to find their secret, what makes them so happy. So um, this is one of the people um, named Maddie, who was a media personality in the Northeast, known as a very happy person. Um, we immediately scheduled an interview for the next day. As she told us the story of her life, the contrast between the happy woman we saw before us and the unhappy childhood she described was remarkable. Maddie's parents were part of the Hollywood elite of the early 1950s, she should have had an idyllic childhood, enjoying the opulent grounds of the mansion in which she was raised. But each new day in the lives of nine-year-old Maddie and her little brother Carl brought new uncertainties and fears. Their mother, alcoholic, drug-addicted, and violent, periodically took an axe to the family Cadillac. As Maddie's mother's addictions took hold and her violent behavior increased, Maddie's father abandoned the family. Eventually, even the servants fled in the face of her unpredictable rages. Maddie and Carl were left alone with their disturbed mother, who often didn't leave the house for days on end. Miles from the nearest market, they lived on peanut butter and tried to stay out of their mother's way. This is her talking. My brother and I were usually by ourselves all day long. On school days, the bus dropped us off to a quiet and foreboding house. Some days, we would hardly see our mother at all. We were so unhappy, almost numb. I knew the kids at school were different from us, and I wanted to be like them. They were relaxed. They laughed and joked and seemed to really enjoy their days. This was so mysterious to me at the time. Then one day I said to myself, I'm going to be happy just like the other kids. And I remember telling Carl, my brother, I had it all figured out. Maddie could see that her mother was miserable compared to the other mothers she knew. And she reasoned that the only way to be happy was to do exactly the opposite of what her mother did. She came up with an ingenious plan to learn in reverse. Her talking again. One day, sitting on the steps outside the vacant servants' quarters where we could hide out, Carl and I made a pact. We promised each day that we would find new ways to be happy every day. At each time we and each time we did whether it was playing a new game, telling a new joke, or having a good laugh, we would be different from her. This was a moment that will be etched in my memory forever. Carl and I still talk about it as the liberating moment in our childhood. She's in this book as one of these extremely happy people. She's decided, she got clear on her intention with her brother, and then 
inclined her mind to keep on going in that direction. It's possible. What it takes is getting really clear on where you want to go. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? What inspires you? Why are you here? It's our sincerity of intention that's really the the secret ingredient. I, I was I was fortunate enough to be with um, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama at this conference for Western uh, Buddhist teachers in Dharamsala, and um, in two days people asked him a different question that he gave the same answer to. One one day somebody said, uh, how do you deal with all the suffering? You see so much suffering. How How is it possible that you don't get overwhelmed by all the suffering that you see? And uh, he thought for just a moment, and he said, my sincere motivation is my protection. It's like, whoa, okay. And then the next day, somebody asked him, what about fear? You, there's so much fear. And you say, even you sometimes can, can get afraid. There's all kinds of terrible things, and, and we kind of know the things that have been happening in Tibet recently. How do you deal with fear? And he, without missing a beat, he just stopped and he said, my sincere motivation that's my protection. When we get in touch with that sincerity of heart, there's something powerful and magical and great protection from ourselves, from, from forces of negativity because we're so aligned with that truth and that purity of heart. So, in the teachings, in the the Buddhist teachings, getting in touch with this highest aspiration, besides wise intention, is also called a clear comprehension of our purpose. That as we are really in touch with what it is that moves us, that's really important to us, even when we slip up and we make mistakes we keep on coming back and are aligned with that place in us that we can come back to as a refuge. The, the power of the force of truth and of connection. And I want to share with you um, some a way that I got in touch with my own clarity of purpose and, and invite you perhaps to do the same um, it was on that that same uh, travel to um, to that conference that I um, I had stopped at uh, Frankfurt. My plane was uh, just the itinerary stopped at Frankfurt, Ger- Germany, before it went to um, Delhi. And when I told a friend that I was stopping in Frankfurt, she said oh, you should see Mother Mira, who is this holy woman, Indian uh, sage. And um, I knew she had gone to see Mother Mira and uh, and had been really affected by her. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe I will. And she looked at me, she said, no, 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 you should go, go. And I said, Okay. And then she said, uh, by the way, Mother Mira can grant you the boon of whatever you wish to come true. I said, okay, I'll go. So I made my plans and uh, arranged to stay there for two nights. And then I went to the, to the uh, darshan. It was a long line of people. and We all went inside and were in this room about, Oh, 100 and 
2,550 of us just sitting quietly for waiting for Mother Mira to come in, meditating. And then uh, in comes Mother Mira, this kind of beatific, saint-like uh, aura, comes and sits down, doesn't give a Dharma talk, doesn't have, doesn't have to say anything, just really good vibes. And, um, and then you go up one by one uh, in front of her, and you have your little darsha on you. Put your head down like this, and she kind of she puts her hands on uh, the back of your neck and does some kind of karmic massage. I was explained uh, untying karmic knots. I don't know what she was doing, but she did that for a little while, and then she lets go. And you look up, and you look right into her eyes, and it's like you know, you're looking into eternity, and uh, do that for a few seconds and then she closes her eyes like okay time and then that's it and um and there's like an on deck circle when you're ready you go and you wait and and then the next person goes and you go up it was about 45 seconds each person i kind of timed it like i don't know how she did it It was like within two seconds or off each time so there i was about to meet this being who was going to grant me my deepest wish. And uh, I didn't want to just go right up right away. I wanted to think this thing through, right? So, uh, you know, a few people went up, more people went up, and then I kept on just saying, what do I really want? That was a heavy question. What do I really, really want? Do I want another experience? No, they kind of come and go. Do I want something? Do I want a gadget? Do I want a big toy, a really neat thing? No, they kind of come and go. What do I really want? I kept on thinking and thinking and just going deeper and deeper. What really matters to me? And then I, I finally got in touch with it and went up did our little darshan thing, looked into her eyes, just kept on focusing on what really matters. And I don't know how it works, whether her untying my karmic knots or whatever was it, but it was like as I was focusing in that very sacred space, it just became like seared into my heart. This is what really matters. And I have stayed in touch with that. It's like 14 years later. Every time before I give a talk, before I meet with with somebody in a counseling session or before I'm about to do something where I really want to be connected, I just stay in touch with what really matters. Now, I ask you, if you were in my position, what would you wish for? I invite you now to just do a little bit of a, an exercise. Close your eyes and imagine being in front of some holy person or a magical genie, some great being who can grant you your deepest, most sincere wish. If you don't let them know, then you just take your chances. But if you get clear on what really matters to you, the universe would support you in that. What would you go for? What's your deepest heart's desire?
See if you can have an image of that manifesting. what it would look like. And if this seems like it's worth going for, decide to make it happen. Decide to do your part to make it happen. Feel the power of that decision. The universe wants to support you. Let yourself feel the wholesomeness of it. And the power in it aligned with truth. Okay, if you like, you can open your eyes. Otherwise, you can stay inside. The most, or one of the most, inspiring intentions is realizing that what you're doing, what you're doing here is not only going to be helpful for you, but everybody will benefit from your practice. It's a gift that you give to everyone. And so whatever it is that has touched you, just include that perspective, if you haven't already, that everybody benefits from your waking up, from your learning to love as deeply as you can, from your being kind. Everyone benefits. So we're not doing this just for ourselves, but for everyone. And that every moment that we are present, every moment that we come from kindness, generosity, clarity, we are sowing the seeds to support our most noble intention. Every single moment counts. So I'll close with this passage that I, I love from uh, the Scottish Himalayan Expedition by W. H. Murray. He says, until one is committed there's hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there's one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That is, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no person could have dreamt would have come their way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets, Whatever you can do, or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So let's sit for a moment.
And we uh, close the the evening um, being together with the reflection on uh, sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.